When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get everything for your next roofing project at Menards. Your roof is the first line of defense against the elements. Owens Corning Shingles are designed to offer long-lasting performance while providing ultimate protection. They have a limited lifetime warranty and up to a 130-mile-per-hour wind warranty. Choose from over 40 options designed to protect your home for years to come. Save big on Shingles at Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly ad on Menards.com. Save big. Welcome to Lit Up. On the podcast this week, we have Hermione Hobie. We're going to talk about her debut novel, Neon in Daylight. It makes a lot of sense to have recorded this in New York because the novel itself is a classic New York story. It's that coming-of-age story of a woman trying to negotiate you know, older men that she admires who probably want more than they should from her, Um, and just really uh, finding your own voice. I love talking to Hermione, and you'll you'll gather that from our conversation. We also recorded this when the Me Too was really having its kind of watershed moment. So there might be a few references to that, uh, but it could be really interesting to see where we were then and where we are now. I'm so pleased because I've wanted to have her on the podcast ever since we met. And now she has her debut novel out called Neon in Daylight. And this is Hermione Hobie. Welcome. (laughs) Hi. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, We were just chatting that it was one of those kind of electric, bright blue, cold New York days. And it reminds me of just... Well, of many scenes in your book, um, but let's talk about the first day you ever arrived in New York. What was that like? Oh, I remember it so clearly, I think, as you do first days. Um, as I was saying to you earlier, I moved here in October, so it was sort of a day like this, one of those golden, huge, skied days. And unlike Kate, the character in my book, I sort of felt like I'd come home, actually. I felt ecstatic. And I'd been I'd been reluctant to move to New York because I was really happy in London and, you know, I had no reason to want to go, even though New York obviously sounded glamorous and exciting. But I just had this strange thing of arriving here and instantly feeling both an excitement but also a kind of, I don't know, like a relief or a familiarity, like, oh, here I am, like, here it is. And then feeling sort of slightly guilty for just so (laughs) summarily dismissing London and my affections, because I'd been very happy in London. But I remember the day I moved here, it was with my then boyfriend, um, who is thanked at the end of the book. Um, But we, we moved into this apartment that was completely empty. It was just so thrilling to be in like an absolutely empty apartment and we had nothing you know I just had my bag from the plane because our stuff was being shipped so I remember the first thing we did was just 
we went and bought a mattress so we could sleep. <laughs> and then we were just in this apartment with just a mattress, which felt kind of beautiful. You know, the way an apartment always looks better with nothing in it. Well, I feel like also <laughs> New York apartments in that romantic way can the kind of lone mattress with totally. the twisted sheets and the sunlight coming exactly. through. Exactly, the sun patches. And yeah. the few books you've p- picked up at the Strand. Right, right. You know, oh, you're painting there. such a good picture. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to sort of overlay your, this romance that you're painting on top of the probably slightly less romantic reality that was <laughs> sleeping on a mattress. <laughs> well, well, why then if you had this romantic kind of beautiful experience coming to New York, did you decide to have Kate have this very alienating one? I think the question of decision when applied to fiction writing, not to sound too grand, I have only written one book, (laughs) but I, I think it's a sort of, it's a funny one because I sort of feel like, you know, I didn't decide on Kate or really any of the three characters. They were just kind of there um, and needed to do what they needed to do. Um, And I, you know, I imagine that Kate, who is a British woman who moves to New York, will most likely be read as autobiographical. And of course, you know, I've drawn from my life. But, but you know, she isn't me. And I don't know why this young woman you know, came to me. Um, I mean, I think, you know, the the things that, the feeling that Kate experiences of dislocation and bewilderment and a sort of estrangement from herself and, you know, wondering whether she's even visible and then being too, feeling too visible. I mean, I've certainly felt all that. I think probably every woman, if not every human being has. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I was drawing on on those feelings, um, you know, which weren't necessarily related to moving to New York, but which were certainly related to being in my 20s um, and being a person in the world trying to make sense of myself. There's a beautiful scene uh, very early in the book where, and I think we can all relate to it, of glimpsing a girl or a woman that seems to have this confidence and uh, um, an ease about them that we want mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. and kind of, and sometimes we have that best friend. I'm thinking I have one particular friend who is so, um, like, not a rebel, but um, very much, like, didn't care what anyone else thought and had yeah. drew people to her. And yeah. she cut her hair off like boy short when we were 15. Oh, you know, it was all did. so yes. kind of radical <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and fabulous. Yeah. And you, this scene in the book, I mean, they're in a, uh, like a bodega and yeah. Kate sees a woman who we, we, we do discover very early in, is Inez. And she has kind of bare feet but is and is like very sexy and buys a packet of American spirits. <laughs> and what does Kate do when she's left? <laughs> Saunters up or tries to saunter and orders the exact same packet of cigarettes. And mm-hmm. I'm really interested in that type of mirroring of behavior mm. we want to be. Mm-hmm. And 
who did you pour into Inez? Or did you have those moments? Because I, I think every woman listening can probably imagine that person yes. for them. Yes, and it's so painful, that emulation, isn't it? Because, you know, when you try and emulate, it's, it's obviously going to fall short. I mean, Inez, Inez came from lots of places, um, you know, girls I've known. And I think that that sort of emulation... It's such a part of one's 20s. And in a way, it doesn't work because you have to be yourself. But in a way, it's also necessary because the only way you become yourself is by sort of trying on different people. And, you know, we become who we are because of other people. You know, we're, we're kind of relational beings. Um, and I think that, you know, there is no sort of inviolable personality really you know it's always sort of shifting depending on who we're with and we're different people with who we are and I think what Kate sees in Inez um is just a supreme lack of self-consciousness when Kate is so mired in self-consciousness um and that is so enviable I think it's almost that beyond you know her sexiness or her carefreeness it's just this lack of self-consciousness, which I guess is something, you know, I saw kind of more generally just among New York women, um, perhaps more so than, than the women I knew in London, uh, where everyone's, you know, repressed and embarrassed. And <laughs> I'm really interested in how when people come to America, mm. I mean, for myself as well, what is it that draws us to this mm. chaotic, bold place? Mm -hmm. And which parts of ourselves are we trying to shed? When I lived in London, I would so often at a party get asked the question, what school did you go to? And that doesn't even mean university, you know, that means, you know, high school or secondary school. And I just hated that question so much because that to me... You know, it was, a, it was a class question. It was the person trying to work out how posh I was. You know, <laughs> I have a posh name. <laughs> my full name is Hermione Buckland Hobie, which is a really ridiculous name. Um, but it comes from my parents' feminism. You know, it's my huh. mom is Buckland, my dad is Hobie. Um, and, you know, Hermione is just a sort of ridiculous name. So I think in London, people would always be, I mean, maybe this isn't the case now. You know, I hope not. But... I had this constant sense of people trying to place me in terms of class, which I just found, you know, it's so exhausting and, like, embarrassing for them that, you know, the most important thing when you meet someone at a party should be trying to work out, you know, how posh they are and what does that even mean? Also, so, it only relates to how posh your parents are exactly. because you haven't even done anything for yourself yet. So true. If you're just thinking <laughs> so about true. what... You know, what preschool you went to and yeah. high school, you have yeah. no I know. It's kind of really influence insane. on that. Yeah. But I think, you know, moving to New York, it wasn't just the class thing. You know, I've never been asked what school I went to here. Like anyone would care. Croydon High School. Shout out Croydon High School for girls. Um, but it was... There's a frankness, I think. And there's also this thing of like, you know, I'm sure the the levels of ambition in both cities and both countries are the same but there is this thing in London where people are seemingly embarrassed to be honest about their ambition or even their wants and their desires mm. and in New York 
people aren't, and that can be obnoxious. You know, it can be a little abrasive when someone is, you know, declaring <laughs> their genius on their or their intent to become a genius. But it, I also find it, you know, quite thrilling just to be around that level of frankness and honesty. And I find it energizing. Ay, this is the perfect place for you to read one of thinking. my favorite <laughs> scenes. Okay. So we, well, why don't you set it up a little? I've folded the page. You know what okay. it is. I was thinking from here. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so this is when Kate is recollecting um, meeting George who is the boyfriend that she's left behind in the UK. Um, they're at Cambridge. Just a note on that, in an early draft, I had them be at Oxford, and this friend of mine was like, oh, you're doing that classic thing of, like, trying to make it look more like fiction. He was like, just make it Cambridge. I was like, okay. Okay, <laughs> fine. Anyway, okay, so, um, so yeah, this is uh, her recollecting meeting George. She met George when their colleges shared seminars. His college, bigger, grander, more photogenic and famous, hosted. Two dozen of them sat around a huge round wooden table where dead canonical poets had sat before them, soft January light pouring in through the windows. The second term was the 17th century. The first class was John Donne. They'd all bought the same edition, every man, handsome in its black and white jacket, the thin scarlet ribbon of a bookmark as proper as a Savile Row necktie. Only the book in George's hands was different. It was the first thing she noticed, his large hands holding that book, a charcoal black volume with elegant silver lettering down its spine. He read aloud without hesitation as though he already knew these rhythms. It was at least four months later that she realized the book in his hands was the same version everyone else had. He'd just taken the dust jacket off. A few weeks ago, before she left, they'd gone to a friend's dinner party. The friend, more George's than hers, had just bought a West London flat, or rather, her parents had, and the evening was an elaborate performance of adulthood. There were canapes from Fortnum and Mason, and place cards bearing names and careful calligraphy, a strict boy-girl, boy-girl seating plan around the table. Champagne, the hostess kept saying to people whose flutes had been diminished only by a sip or two. She looked, bottle and eyebrows raised, as if she were about to strike a dainty bell. George had sat opposite Kate, and as the dinner progressed, he seemed to be drawing in the air around him, tightening it. Who knows how the conversation reached the place it did, but one young woman called Annabelle began talking about pornography. She was petite, fine-boned, and her high voice seemed to undulate erratically, as though subjected to its own tiny weather systems, little breezes and quick currents over which she had little to no control. Ugh, it's disgusting, she said, just so degrading to women. And then something rushed into Kate, some renegade idea riding on a red wine crest. Why do you think it's degrading? She heard herself say. Every eye around the table stared at her face. Her words had been strangely loud. Without looking at him, she could feel George watching her. Annabel frowned, then blanched and reddened an impressive chromatic succession. With a kind of tremble of refusal, she said, this time to the plate in front of her, it's degrading. And when she snuck a glance upward at Kate, it was hot and sharp. 
She'd been made to repeat herself and sound stupid. She'd been held to her own opinion by another woman. She went on. It's demeaning to women to be gussied up like objects and... Her eyes glinted now with what Kate feared were tears, fucked like animals. And she reached for her napkin to cover her mouth as if she were wiping away that bad word. The table seemed to shift in sympathy, unease. But isn't it possible, Kate had said, because why stop now, that some women might like to be fucked like animals, that they might actually want and enjoy that? Kate saw the eyebrows of the young man to Annabelle's left shoot up in a show of scandalized amusement. He took a large gulp of wine to show he was stifling a smirk. And then, okay, the boyfriend of the hostess bellowed, a broad, good-natured, putting to bed of the entire discussion. Who wants eaten mess? People laughed, relieved. Kate rushed with homicidal urges. Annabelle extricated herself from her chair and walked stiffly in the direction of the bathroom. George issued Kate a deliberate, dark look, then refilled his wine glass. She stretched her hand across the distance of white linen, reaching for his wrist. His arm jumped at her touch, knocking the wine glass over. A vast, blood-coloured puddle spread as the bowl of the glass rolled away from its severed stem. If the look he'd shot her a moment earlier had been dark, this one was like a black hole, an unequivocal, hateful, look what you've done. They didn't speak in the taxi home. He had to be the first to say something. She would hold out. He had to apologize for that look, which she had then obsessed over with some strange devotion, like a child with a freshly grazed knee. He'd flinched when she touched him, as though she were something toxic. She sat up against the chill of the window, the London streets blurred with rain and streetlights, and cried silently and steadily. And when they were home, in bed, they talked in quiet, truncated sentences until hopelessness silenced them and they lay there in the no light, miserable. Everyone can see why I love that scene, <laughs> and it's even better when you read it. Oh. <laughs> Thanks. I love, but it's so strange why on earth is she with him? Because he, he has a... I mean, it's kind of the same reason she's drawn to Inez, I think. It's his charisma. You know, he's really handsome and really smart and really confident, and uh, she can't believe that he's interested in her. I mean, I always think that's really interesting about desire. I think a lot about the problem of female, or at least straight female desire being in, you know, tricky ways bound up with being desired. And I think that's one of the things that that Kate, you know, that occupies her a lot, this sense of how visible she is and and how being desired makes you feel desire. I think more than anything, I identified with her because I think I have been with men like that or in relationships like that where I was actually just talking to a girlfriend recently where I don't know if you've had this thing in a past relationship where it's one thing, it's one look or it's one comment and you know you're done. And you fall. And you fall. And yeah. I remember she said that she was dating a guy, actually an English guy. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they were watching television or something mm -hmm. and he, the way he talked about how hot the woman was on television, mm. 
in her mind, she couldn't be with a man who would want to talk like that about another woman in front of her. And it wasn't like, oh, she's hot. Or it, There was something about the tone and the kind of aggression mm. to, to the tone that she said it wasn't about the words, but it was about how they came out that she goes, oh, mm. I, he's a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Like that was her, inc- her instinct. Mm. And she's not with him and she's very happy with someone else. But mm. there are these moments that you know, the before and after moments. Right. I thought, sorry, I thought you were referring to the moment when you fall in love, but actually you're talking about like the knocked over wine glass. I'm talking (laughs) over the flinch or the look or the the not, um, like the loyalty where you see that for someone how how their friends think is more important than how... You and actually, yeah. often it's when you're expressing your your innermost, your truest self. yeah, your truest yeah. self. That's yeah. it. When you yeah. kind of express something. Yeah. Well, I think probably in that moment there is a part of Kate that is kind of testing George. You know, she's daring him. She's like, you know, she's voicing an opinion, and I don't. I, I sort of feel like she doesn't even know whether she thinks this. She's just, you know, has an urge to be provocative. So I. I perhaps think more warmly about George in that moment than you, than you do. Oh, see, I, mean, I, I love how we pour all our own experiences course, into these things. That's fiction, man. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, you know, he behaves really appallingly in that moment, um, but she's not innocent in that moment either, you know. And, you know, I think this is what relationships are. There are all these yeah. tiny betrayals and recalibrations and... You know, it's, it, there's never a, a constancy, I don't think, between any between any two people, however much they love each other. I mean, this relationship obviously is, you know, doomed. <laughs> no spoilers. But. but also, I just remembered to going to dinner parties where, you know, when you get that glint in your eye and it's usually after, you know, mm. two glasses of wine or mm-hmm. something where you want to push. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yes. like... You're like, who is this woman? Like, what yeah. What are her, you know, yeah. all they're talking about is renovation and you just want to kind of stick a knife in. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I, I'm sort of embarrassed how often I have that feeling. <laughs> and I, you know, it's rare that I act on it. But I was just, I mean, just over Thanksgiving, I was, this will sound like I'm off on a real tangent and maybe I am. But No, but we love tangents. All right, here we go. <laughs> Tangenting away. Uh, I went to see, my husband and I went to see the, the Vermeer show at the National Gallery in DC. And, you know, you have to stand in line for a very long time. So when you finally get in, I guess, I guess what has been instilled in people by standing in line is a kind of religious reverence. And I saw this thing when we got in the gallery that I'd never seen before of people in, you know, little clumps would follow the route of the exhibition. So they would just very obediently go, you know, painting one, shuffle along painting two. And I felt the same sort of urge that Kate has. You know, I felt this kind of, fuck this feeling, you know, and kind of in this adolescent way, found myself like zigzagging, you know, pointedly zigzagging around the gallery, kind of feeling like I can look at whatever painting I want. Um, and feeling just an exasperation with the kind of reverence, I mean, in that case, in the Vermeers, that is a disservice to the paintings, you know? It's a kind of unthinking, religious, like, let us be humbled by these great works from a very old, dead, famous guy 
rather than like, why don't we look at these and engage with them? Um, I'm just realizing now I'm sounding a little bit like Bill, who I can't remember if it's still in there. I really can't remember, like, you know, what's been cut and not. I'll tell you. Okay. <laughs> when Bill expresses a, a sort of contempt for the way people walk in galleries, a kind of, you know, I think he calls it like goosily, goosily walking with their hands clasped behind their back. We need to talk about Bill because we do. We do. He is the third kind of looming character, and I think um, I wonder if I've interviewed one of the men <laughs> that it's that he could be based on. Oh man! Because there's a few of those kind yeah. of New York male writers who yeah. have that very early success and then kind of ride on it and sleep their way through. True. The city. True. Oh, poor Bill. He's really, I mean, someone asked the other day, you know, they were like, who is he? And, you know, truly, he isn't anyone. He is, he is a creation. Um, I've been thinking a lot about him recently. Well, the two of them in terms of, you know, this moment of reckoning we're in, in terms of male sexuality and power. Um, it's, it's strange when, you know, to, to, look at, to look at the book in the light of that and to think, just to see these characters in a slightly different light um, and to wonder, like, wow, did, is, does Bill sort of, you know, abuse his power? And I think, I think... I don't get that sense in the book. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, I, I don't think he does, but I think complicity is, you know, a very <laughs> complex thing. And, you know, in the same way that that moment with Kate and George and the wine glass and his sort of betrayal, his very subtle betrayal of her, she is, I sort of feel like she's, she's in some way complicit in that and that she is kind of asking, you know, she's provoking him into a betrayal. She's saying, these are not my people. And he's saying, these, these are my people. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think there's, there is a similar thing with, with Kate and Bill. Uh, she does pursue him and he has that, he does use the word predatory about her at one point in a kind of questioning way. I mean, just, you know, to slightly change tack, I do feel embarrassed that I've written a book with a writer in it, you know? It's just like such an eye roll. <laughs> and if I had a choice, you know, I wouldn't have, but... The same, you know, as and you asked me earlier, sort of, you know, where, where did Kate come from or where did Inez come from? And, you know, Bill really didn't come from a person. He was just, he was just kind of there. So I had to let him be. And for a moment I was like, oh, you know, maybe I should make him a filmmaker, you know, just try and not make him a writer. And he just resisted that. It's just, I couldn't, I couldn't make him anything but a writer. But I do feel just like broadcasting an apology for writing a novel with a writer in it. But I think this whole writery, like caring about whether writers are in books, only writers care about oh, really? writers being in books. Okay, cool. All right. Well, I don't that's... think, I think it's like an inside thing that yeah. writers go, oh, there's a writer in the book. But I don't think in the big wide world it's yeah. a thing. I think, oh, great. Yeah. I mean, he was such a specific character to me, even though I said, you know, yes, he could be drawn from all these different people, but 
I mean, I was even thinking, I don't know if this relates at all, but we, you have written about Harvey Weinstein and the scandal for The Guardian yeah, yeah. and things. And actually, I saw that list, you know, of like oh, yeah. the list that people in media and the, um, we should explain, in the aftermath of the Harvey Weinstein um, scandal breaking, you know, p- women in media created this list, a Google list, and would import people's names and kind of what they'd done to them. And I mean, this varied in the same way that the scandals that have come up from very serious assault to very minor, minor things. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not putting Bill in this light, your character at all, but it was so interesting to be thinking about these two things at once mm-hmm. and going, mm-hmm. I know, I recognise some of the people on the list and I n- not know them. Mm. And I wondered, but none of them had the very serious things written next to their name. Yes. But I just wondered how in my relations with them, not none, not sexual particularly, but yeah. how I had, what yeah. was my role in the flirtations or... yeah. yeah. It's just so complicated to Absolutely. know how yeah. like how to negotiate this new world. So true. And I think you know we, we all live under patriarchy, not just men, you know. Um and it has to be a process of interrogating ourselves, which is so hard to do. I mean, I, you know, before Weinstein, I would just think endlessly about the way I related to men, both romantically and non. And how hard it is to know, to see, you know, what is what is you and then what is, you know, something invidious and systemic that you actually want to unlearn or surmount. Um, yeah, it's... <laughs> It's incredibly hard. It's a really painful moment. I mean, I, I interviewed Jeffrey Eugenides recently and he was wonderful. And we actually, this was actually before, when I met him, it was pre-Weinstein story breaking. But we were talking about, he was talking about empathy, um, as I hoped he would, as I hope everyone will. <laughs> but, you know, he was, he was saying, you know, in this, under this administration, it's more important than ever and we should extend empathy to everyone. And the question, the kind of moral question I've been struggling with since the election is where the boundaries are. Because, you know, what I mean is, I said to him, but what about Charlottesville and white supremacists? You know, do we, do we seek humanity in those people? Do we seek to understand their point of view? And he gave this really ethically sound answer, which I sort of you know, like holding like a talisman, which is that we need to be able to separate, you know, the sin from the sinner, basically. I mean, he didn't use that Christian religious language, but the actions from the person. And in the same way, you know, I am constantly trying just in my own life to separate patriarchy from the men I love, which isn't to say that the men I love, you know, are not in some way sexist because probably all of us are sexist, just as all of us are racist because we live in a sexist, racist world. But just how important it is to keep that distinction, you know, that to know that a person can do terrible things um, 
And yet there might be the capacity for differentiating between those terrible actions and who that person is. I mean, I guess this, this sort of comes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of personality being fixed or not. And I think the big question now that we're struggling with as we think of all these men who have done despicable things and I, you know, I fully support the transparency of this moment and, you know, this painful reckoning. But I think the question now is what is rehabilitation? What might that look like? And I don't know. You know, it's probably too soon to be thinking about that. But I am really interested in that. Um, and I'm also really interested... I mean, the, the kind of book I would love to be reading now is a book which is about, you know, straight male desire. I really want to read something compassionate and questioning and painful about what it is to be a straight guy, <laughs> like, with, you know, with sexual urges, with a sexual life. Um, because... You know, we, we, we have that whole, that whole sort of generation of, like, you know, Roth and Updike and, you know, all those swinging dick dudes. <laughs> but what I would love now is, is to read straight men really investigating contemporary masculinity. I think that's, you know, feminism needs to make space for that, I think, for how... My, my conception of feminism has always been kind of rooted in humanism, you know, this idea that women are people too, and people are people. <laughs> and so men are people too. <laughs> um, yeah, even the, the sexist ones. I'd love to read that book. I've often, I mean, through this period, I've thought, you know, there are so many incredible women writing amazing op-eds mm -hmm. about what this means mm -hmm. for them and the culture at large. But I do wonder where are the men writing the similar pieces? Yeah. I mean, I've read some really bad pieces by men, which are basically, you know, exculpatory, you know, veiled as kind of gracious, but, you know, really, they're just saying, like, forgive me. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think in, in the realm of op-ed... I'm, I feel like less inclined Not to be reading yeah, guys yeah. now. Uh, I mean, this is just, you know, I'm just, I just have a kind of hopeless belief in fiction. <laughs> I just think it's such a civilizing force. You know, if you sit down and engage in a book length work, you're going to have a way more humane response to whatever mind is at play there than if you, you know, read a 1200 word op-ed on your phone, which isn't to say that, you know, 1,200-word op-eds on whatever screen they're read aren't useful. I just really wish we all read more fiction. <laughs> I do. I mean, recently I interviewed Karl Ove Knausgaard, mm. and actually I had had all these preconceptions about him yeah. before I read his work. Yeah. You know, because I thought, oh, who's this, like, handsome Norwegian man kind uh -huh. of wielding around the world? And then yeah. I read the work... Yeah. And I really feel like he is going to those places. Like yes. he is talking about yes. no, that's sexuality true, yeah. and yeah. kind of male desire kind of that's put up against what men, who men are supposed to be right now and yeah. the kind of um, anger, or not 
a kind of internal anger. I mean, all anger, I guess, is kind of internal. That's a bit silly. But no, no. about being the domesticated male yes, and that yes. the fight against that and like almost the rage against that. But then, so I feel like that was fascinating to me yeah. to go, oh, like here is someone interrogating that part of himself. Mm, yeah. Um, but I haven't read anyone else lately who is. Yeah. And yet he got kind of attacked for having this one piece, I remember when the Galley of Autumn came out and there is, oh, yeah. um, there's labia, one. right? Yeah, the labia. <laughs> well, actually, like if you read it in the context of the book, I found it so insightful mm. and honest. Like, yeah, yeah I, I just found yeah. the way some women wanted to open the page and like take a screenshot of it and go, uh-huh. and deride him. Sure, yeah. So yeah. in, yeah, I mean, I think, I I really love his writing and I think, you know, as with people, it's often like the thing that we love most about them is also the thing that's like most infuriating. And the thing that I love about his writing is that quality of guilelessness, you know, you do feel it, it is almost, I mean, to use a sort of word that's slightly loaded right now, unfiltered, you know, and and that's what gives it, that's what makes it so compelling because there is that sort of purity, you know, there's no artifice. This is just straight up Carl. <laughs> and yet um, there can be a slight tone deafness, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? Like, would we rather that was edited out so we had a sanitized version oh, of the male no. mind? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want a sanitized version of everything. Give me the grubby version. I know, version. <laughs> I know. It's, but it's complicated, isn't it? Because then we think about free speech and... Of course, or- yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is I... The kind, of, the kind of mind, the kind of mind I would love to read is, um, is just a, a guy who is questioning things more because I I mean I feel like you know I think so often of that scene I can't remember which volume it's in but you know that the famous scene where he goes to the the baby group and he's so annoyed that the attractive woman leading the group could not possibly see him as a sexual object because he's looking after a baby and basically it's like welcome to the world of women (laughs) but isn't that tragic that you know, we can't see a parent as a sexual object. I mean, I think that's just, you know, I would, it would be so interesting to me to read someone wondering about that rather than just being yeah. pissed that, you know, the sexy woman doesn't find them sexy. I mean, I, I'm, sounding like, I'm sounding like I'm bashing Canascot. No, you're I, not. No, this is just a discussion. This, <laughs> we're here to talk about your book, but I love where all the places that your book is sparking us to go. Okay, cool. (laughs) Wait, so I want to ask you another question because there is a whole kind of subculture in the book that we, I cannot believe we haven't gone there. Oh, yeah. All about the Craigslist (laughs) scenarios. How did you first discover this kind of realm in Craigslist? I mean, we know it exists. And I guess, can you explain, perhaps without giving too much away, what I'm talking about, but kind of sure. how Inez kind of gets into this interesting yes. world. So she, she's, I think she, yeah, she's trying to sell a mirror on Craigslist, which I find kind of funny anyway, just the idea of a mirror. So she's trying to sell a mirror and she just kind of, you know, with idle curiosity strays into this whole world that is the world, I don't even know what to call it, but of, you know, people posting very specific sexual wants that can then be answered by a stranger. And I just found this idea fascinating that 
for one, that desire could be, you know, articulated in such specific terms, you know, and how is it that this, that some person, for example, you know, just really gets off on watching a woman put on makeup, or actually probably the, the oddest example in the book is having a woman locked in a closet. You know, where does that come from? And then just, you know, how kind of wonderful that they can have that answered. You know, they can just post this embarrassing, strange want on the internet and then someone might do it. Um, so I think, I, I guess I was just thinking about, you know, I mean, this sounds like a really inane question, but what is sex? So I just found this fascinating. And I wish I had, you know, a juicy tale for you of like my own forays into this dark world. But unlike Inez, I, you know, I never had the courage to actually answer an ad or do anything. Um, but I would think endlessly about, you know, who is anyone compromised here? Who is compromised here? What is the nature of this transaction? Um, who is demeaned here, if anyone? Um, and I, you know, I still don't have any answers to those questions. Um, I, I was quite anxious writing, because Inez, you know, her interest in this is, is that of sort of a dilettante, you know, a kind of callow adolescent who just thinks it's sort of funny that she can both earn money, you know, doing something like putting on makeup while a guy watches. Um, but also, obviously, she's attracted to the strange power that she has. Um, and I, I, you know, I was conscious of writing this of, you know, sex work is so often depicted in these really nastily, subtly moralistic terms. And that is so pervasive in our society. And, you know, I find it really offensive that sex workers could be, you know, thought of as doing something demeaning. Um, I don't think there is anything inherently demeaning in sex work if a person is choosing to do that, you know, willingly, happily. Um, and obviously, you know, that isn't Inez. She is kind of dabbling it. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of fascinating that through the internet, I mean, this applies to pornography as well. You know, you can have like a wildly niche specific idea about what turns you on. And, you you know, you can literally write those words in to a search bar and there will, you know, there'll be something. You'll find something. Um, I I just sort of want to shout out my, my friend's fantastic book, um, Future Sex by Emily Witt, which is is largely about these sorts of things, you know, how technology has impacted sexuality or, or vice versa. Um, and, you know, what, what Emily does in that book is it's so courageous. She's just challenging every preconception we have. Anyway, yeah, I just highly recommend that book. <laughs> I well, don't want to do her an injustice by, you know, trying to talk about it and failing. <laughs> One of the things I think is really interesting, which the questions come up in your book, is that idea of um, if someone else isn't taking pleasure mm. in the act, mm -hmm. 
is can you still take pleasure? And obviously, yes, absolutely. Mm. But I think sometimes when, you know, when I think of sex, you think, oh, the person I'm having it with, you know, so much of my pleasure is derived from their pleasure. Whereas in the scenarios you're talking about, um, Inez or, you know, a woman who goes to, you know, step on a man's balls or something (laughs) with stilettos um, (laughs) or whatever it is, like they're actually not aroused by that. Well, like a dominatrix isn't necessarily aroused by what she's asked to do. Yes. But the man or or woman is, you know, obviously that is so arousing for them. So I just Mm. think that's so fascinating, Mm. all the realms in which desire lives and, you know, how potent is desire if the person that you're having this kind of partnership with isn't or is involved kind of emotionally in a similar state. But then you think, then it made me think, oh my gosh, we're all in our heads. You know, sometimes know, you have this real connection with someone and but you actually still really don't know what they're thinking. Yeah, you know, was it but, good for you? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, totally. Um, totally. Just, and I think I think that's why maybe I wanted to include that bit in which, you know, Bill is sort of before he meets Kate having casual sex, but that thing is happening of a kind of unbidden intimacy. Um you know, you you can think like it's just bodies and it's just physical pleasure, but then something can be happening. Um, and I, you know, I, I I just wanted Bill, I wanted there to be an emotional component to Bill's sexuality um, because I think that's often denied in men. Um, I mean, both sort of fictively and you know, in the real world too. When we think of male sexuality. We just, you know, we just kind of think of bonus. We don't think of yeah, their feelings. Feelings, because men, men have are feelings so lovely too. too. <laughs> that's a, okay. That's what we're gonna leave on. Men have feelings too. No, and like I think we've touched on many aspects of the book without giving the kind of runaway plot away. So thank you for being here. Oh, thank you so what a, much. What a gorgeous day. We've this was such a treat. This podcast really made me think about how New York is one of the loves of my life. Um, Sometimes it's, um, you know, it cheats on me, it's mean, um, but it's also this glorious place. And Hermione's book made me see it again with new eyes and all the many facets of it. So let me know if there's a city that does this for you, if it's one of your loves, and maybe we can find a book that... Um, and an author that writes about that city in this way, uh, please get in touch at Lit Up Show on Instagram and Twitter. Get everything you need to keep your pets happy and healthy at Menards. Feed your canine companion the best with chicken soup for the soul. Their dog food is made with real quality ingredients. It provides well-balanced nutrition for supporting happy, healthy pets. Explore all our pet products in-store and on Menards.com. And check out more of our great deals going on now at Menards.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.